My pleasure to introduce a crime writer I've been following and enjoying for many years, Alison Galen. She has uh, won the Edgar and the Seamus and has been nominated for most of the other major crime writing prizes. What sets Alison apart from many other crime writers, in my mind, is her deep interest in pop culture and the media. And this seems to be the product of years spent working in entertainment journalism. Allison, I, I wanted to ask you first about, it seems like the crime fiction scene has shifted a little bit in recent years in relation to media. But, you know, back in the 80s and 90s, it seemed rare that crime books were adapted to the big screen unless it was uh, Grisham, you know, or someone mm -hmm. like that. Now it seems like with streaming and cable, there are more opportunities for the really wonderful crime writers we have to see their stories dramatized. You know, maybe. It, do you feel, from your point of view, that this is something that has expanded greatly in recent years? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think the streaming services are the best thing to happen to authors in general, but particularly crime fiction authors, where you're writing things with a lot of different twists. I think the, you know, the, either the limited run series format or the extended series format, but particularly the limited run, really lends itself to adaptation of novels because it's when you binge one of those, it's like reading a novel, really. Yes. Yes. And so it's a lot easier. I mean, I was thinking back to some of the movie adaptations and then reading the books and how, I mean, Mystic River to me is a great example because reading the book, I, that's one of my favorite books. And, yes. and, and so much of the suspense and so much of the thing that makes that book so scary and wonderful and deep and real are the um, sort of internal monologues of the characters and the depth of those characters, particularly Dave and him discovering these things, horrible things about himself. Yes. Um, and you don't get to see that on screen at all because no matter how great an actor is, and that movie, of course, had a wonderful cast, mm -hmm. you can't, uh, you, you just can't convey that on, on screen in a two-hour movie. Whereas if you have a limited-run series, you can do things like flashbacks and, and, and you can do voiceovers and you can do all sorts of things. You have more time to sort of lay out a story. And so you can kind of go into the heads of people on screen, whereas you didn't think that was possible before. Plus, it's, there's so many more opportunities for us. You know, I have... A lot of friends and um, and myself included have you know had things optioned, whereas we might not have had things even noticed before because there's just so much more of a demand for content. So it's all very exciting at, at, for as a viewer and as a writer. I think. Yeah, yeah I've, I've even seen you know interviews with actors. This is part of the reason why I think these these streaming shows are are attracting the biggest names in Hollywood because they yeah. you know I've, I've had actors say I would much rather explore a character over, you know, a 30-episode, three-season arc than, you know, 120-page screenplay. So even, and that, that makes perfect sense, uh, especially when you're transferring something from the written word from such a, a rich work like Lane's book, uh, as you say. I think it, it, it would appeal to everybody. Absolutely. I mean, there's just, there's so many more opportunities, and you can do different episodes uh, that are a little more experimental in nature. You can kind of change up the style at certain points. You can you can have something really mirror the structure of a book 
much easier uh, in a limited run format, I think. So, yeah, it's, it's very, very exciting. <laughs> Uh, I want to, uh, first of all, I've very much enjoyed your uh, your recent title, If I Die Tonight, I read last week, and just an absolutely terrific, uh, terrific book, great story. Uh, it explores the relationship between parents and children and, and how social media plays a role in their lives, and I have to say, as a, as a parent of a 17-year-old son, this is something that I related to a lot, um, particularly the pitfalls of it, the false rumors and bullying and everything that... Uh, you know, that the children are subjected to through social media. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the prevalence of social media and how over the trajectory of your career, how it has influenced both your storytelling and just your day-to-day -day career as a fiction writer. Oh, yes, definitely. Um, it's so interesting. I mean, I think when things like, um, you know, all the technology came around at first, I think a lot of crime writers were frightened because they thought, oh, you know, you don't get to be as isolated. You can't make things as scary or as suspenseful. But actually, um, I think it's a little more terrifying to always be watched. <laughs> um, I think we live in a really sort of paranoid era with, you know, all sorts of possibilities uh, involved in social media as far as uh, storytelling goes. But also just the prevalence of it, uh, you're absolutely right. My first book came out in 2005, and, um, and it took place actually in 2000. And so there was no social media or anything. I don't even know if I had cell phones in that book, actually. Um, and, you know, and then you look, I look over everything, you know, from there on in. You know, and as, as Joe mentioned, I really uh, do love to kind of, entrench my books in the era in which they take place. So I don't shy away from pop culture. In fact, I'm sort of obsessed with it. Um, and the same thing with social media. My daughter is now 19 years old, but when I wrote If I Die Tonight, she was, I think, about 14 or 15 um, or when I started it. And uh, yet, I mean, you really get a sense of these kids, they're never apart from their social group. They're always there. You know, they're always being watched you know if, if they are bullied then it's a 24-hour thing they can't go yeah. home and close the door you know if their friends are having issues they can't sort of go home and cool off the fights continue and <laughs> continue <laughs> and the other people are joined in and they are made a spectacle of this isn't just true of kids it's true of adults too if, if I die tonight I mean there's the mom I think the first scene is She's uh, on Facebook looking at everybody's fabulous lives that are all curated mm -hmm. on Facebook. It's, it's just, it's changed all of our lives so much for the better and for the worse. So that really is the theme of that book. Social media does play a role in all my books, but that one in particular is. Uh, well, and it, and it deals with a, a hit and run incident. And that happened to one of a schoolmate or something like you had a personal thing like this, right? With a schoolmate of one of your children that involved a hit and run, which yes. on the idea for the novel. Yes. Yeah, so um, my daughter, she was friends. Uh, this this was the, actually, there was a hit and run that I live in Ulster County, Woodstock, New York. And then this happened in Dutchess County, in Rhinebeck, this hit and run. And my daughter, I think, told me this story when she was like 13 or 14. Um, it was the older brother of one of her friends 
from across the river, was involved in a hit and run with another boy from a rival school, and, and the other boy wound up dying in the hit and run. But the kids, they embellished this story so much through social media and everything where at one point one boy was saving a, another, a woman. The boy had taken the woman's purse and was in the car, and the other boy was rushing towards the car to get the purse. There, it, all these things that were not true, you know. Yeah, with the hit yeah. and run, I, I actually think it was just a pretty – prosaic, sad, tragic hit and run, but all, but the way the kids kind of embellished this story um, was fascinating to me and, and the role that social media played in that and how it sort of grew into something else than what it really was um, kind of creating a monster in a way of a story. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's funny. yeah. It I mean, when we, when we grew up, we had those urban legends and you tell stories at slumber parties yeah. And it would always be your cousin's friend's friend, you know. But now it's like an urban legend can form in two minutes. Um, we get very little ballast from truth anymore because it's so easy to embellish things very quickly. I remember when urban legends would sort of start on a local level and then you would hear it connected to a celebrity. And in those days, it could take sort of years and, and the story would return. I remember there was a case in the town I covered in Delaware, where a rumor spread like wildfire that a woman had caught her husband cheating and glued his penis to his leg with super glue, you know? And then a few, a few years after that, I remember it came back as a definite story about a celebrity, you know? And I think I heard that too. That sounds really familiar. And it, it, it sounds familiar to me as well. So the, the urban legend thing, but it just takes longer to do than it does it you know, to spread. Oh, exactly, exactly. Yes, there was there was one story, you know, that uh, that I'm sure we all know that I think was attributed to Richard Gere, but it was yeah. Attributed oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Dozens of other male celebrities before him, apparently. I, I think Jim Neighbors was before. There were all these people right. that this was. You're referring, I think, to the Gerbil story, correct? Story was attributed <laughs> to. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's funny. The reason why I immediately discounted that story it, it relates to what you just said. That story was attached, no pun intended, to. Uh, a, a newscaster in Philadelphia where, where I grew up, you know, and, and was horrifying, you know, in terms of the way it spread through the city. But then, you know, it, it was enlarged with, with the gear thing. And, and, you know, you just wonder, like, what was the origin of it? Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. Why attach? I mean, why? <laughs> yeah. right. It's a crazy story to begin with, but why think, oh, I'm going to cast Richard Gere as the leader. Yeah. 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 the lead in the urban legend yeah. yes. 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 exactly so yeah and it's um it's funny i mean i'm kind of wondering like somebody somewhere out there there's a wonderful graduate thesis being done on this i'm sure but um i i really would love to see you know how urban legends have changed over the years and the effect of social media on them and whether they yeah. have a <clears throat> like a whether they die quicker yes. in addition to being born quicker, you know? Yeah. Right. You know, Allison, as a, as a reader and as an observer, one of the things that, that has always interested me about you is that you came to fiction writing from a pretty extensive background in entertainment journalism. And, and I wondered if you believe that served you well as sort of setting you up to write fictional stories. Um, yes. 
actually, I would say so definitely. I One of my first jobs when I was out of college was I was a reporter for the Star, and the tabloid, not the, the newspaper, the Star, right. but the Star, right. Star Magazine. Yeah. Um, which, and back then, um, the Star Magazine now is much classier than the one that was around back then. It was like a, the National Enquirer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So we were sneaking on to movie sets and everything, and we did have to get three sources for all these stories, but there was there's a definite attitude that when you're writing that type of um, article, there's a good guy and a bad guy, and, a, and, and things are so much more clear-cut and less nuanced than they are in real life, and, and you want to tell a story, you know? Yeah. Um, so I do say, you know, yeah, I, I, um, I did get a tr- tremendous preparation for fiction writing was actually writing fiction. <laughs> um, and, you know, and, uh, yeah, it was, it was a pretty crazy experience. I'm sure Joe that we've talked about this before, but I, yeah. I had to, I crashed David Hasselhoff's wedding, you know, and, and that's yeah. a ridiculous experience. I was at, I, I was at Fred Savage's bar mitzvah, you know, oh my gosh. just crazy things where, you know, I was young. I was just out of, college and so I was could easily blend in in these places and people wouldn't necessarily think I was a reporter for like one of the trashiest tabloids (laughs) a wonderfully trashy tabloid I actually was a fun experience and you know I I ended up going to graduate school at Columbia after I was one of two reporters for the star that got into graduate school Columbia journalism school the year after (laughs) so I'm like oh are they just they're like taking tabloid reporters That's, that's funny. So, um, but yeah, it was, it is, um, I think my journalism training in general has helped me a lot as a fiction writer in that I understand the value of a good editor. I understand the value of a good rewrite. I'm not precious about my words so much. I can meet a deadline most of the time. And I feel like, you know, the the wonderful thing, one of the, one of my teachers at Columbia was actually um, Judith Chris, and she was one of the best teachers I've ever had. Wonderful. And, And she really, really impressed upon me the value of rewriting and how something can always continuously be improved. And, and when you're putting something out there in the world, it's never going to be perfect. They can always come back to it and improve it, which was sort of, you know, freeing and terrifying at the same time, but really helpful to me as a writer because it, it helps you get out a first draft, no matter how awful it is. And right. my first drafts are terrible <laughs> with the knowledge that, that, you know, in a couple of weeks, in a day, I'm going to be a better writer than I am today, and I can look at it and I can improve it. So right, and know. it gets you in that mind frame of just sort of spraying the paint on the canvas, you know, and just getting it all out of you for that first yeah. draft instead of getting hung up on that. I, that that comes from that journalistic background. You think that sort of helps that, or you I literally have to get it too. on the page. Yeah, yeah, and you can't have an ego when you're a journalist because you're writing in the style of whatever newspaper it is that you're writing for. Like if I wrote a story that would be great in the New Yorker for, for Star Magazine, they would right. throw it back at me and say, what is this crap? You know, I mean, it's not a matter of, you know, it's, it, it's a matter of catering um, your style to your audience. And so you can't have an ego about your words. You know, right. I've had, I've had so many editors just be like, this is terrible. This is so boring. And I'm like, this is a, this is a solid lead. Like I learned how to write. <laughs> <laughs> like, no, this is horrible. Okay, you know, let me whip out the adverbs then. And the, right. you know, and, whatever and, you want. <laughs> and the importance of, of an editor 
as a first reader, I mean, was what I learned early on in newspapers, you know, that you, you do have an ego and you think whatever you write is good, you know, but I, I mean, I learned again and again that if my editor doesn't really understand what I'm trying to say, if it isn't clear to him or her, there are going to be X number of people out there. So you have to, you have to make his, his or her changes and really understand that. Yes, exactly, exactly. And, you know, I mean, there's always, there are always going to be things that you might disagree with with your editor. Yeah. Yep. Um, and, and, you know, a great editor will, you, you can reach some middle ground, you know, um, which has certainly happened with me before. Pick your battles, I'll, right? <laughs> yeah, pick your battles and, and be able to take a step back and, and realize, all right, maybe the solution my editor is offering is not a good one, but the problem that she's having is legitimate. How can I help solve this problem but my own way? You know, that's mm-hmm. usually what happens. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, Allison, we spend a lot of time. In fact, the, the core of this uh, of this mm-hmm. podcast, we uh, discussed the bridge between the written word and the bigger or the small screen. And you touched on this a little bit, so that you had some of your books option. I'm curious, what level of experience or interest do you have in this realm? As far as do you have any experience in writing original screenplays or scripts, or if one of your books should get transferred to the bigger, the small screen, how much? involvement would you like to have? Does that interest you or would you be, as you you were just saying how you don't consider things so precious, would you be willing to hand your work over to another screenwriter or director? Well, I, I, you know, I don't mind, you know, handing it over to another screenwriter. I, I did have something that was uh, options in the past. Megan Abbott and I wrote a graphic novel and in development, we wrote the, a draft of the pilot for that. And that was a fun experience for me, but I will admit that it's not, you know, necessarily like I don't have tons of experience as a screenwriter and I would welcome a really talented screenwriter, but I do feel a little bit squeamish of just giving up my characters completely. And, and, you know, I'd like to have, and I do tend to have, you know, at least consulting uh, abilities. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's kind of a scarier thing when you're assigned to write something like say for a magazine or newspaper or, you know, you're writing something, you're adapting, whatever, um, you, you don't have the same sort of tie to it as you do towards your, your book, your characters, you know, Mm -hmm. I think it would be really fascinating to see what a great screenwriter could do uh, with my book, but I'd, I'd love to at least be in on the process a little bit. Um, right. You know, it, it's interesting. When I was in college, I studied playwriting, and um, my plays won a couple of contests, which meant that they were produced on stage at, at my college at Northwestern. Mm-hmm. And I went to a couple of the rehearsals of, you know, one of the plays, and I was just – I. It was just horrifying to me to like listen to. No, that's not how I wrote the line. This is how uh, I'm like I can't go. I gotta go. So it might be something like that ultimately. Where I'm like I gotta just right. step back because obviously this person, you know, might have ideas that are not the same as my ideas and they might work. You know, so right. I think you gotta let go of a little control when you're when you're when you're having something adapted. It would be interesting to adapt my own work again, but it's, it would not be essential. You know what I'm saying? Right. So, yeah. Now, Allison, we hear horror stories 
in Hollywood about the competitiveness between actors, between writers, between directors. But one of the things that has always struck me about the crime writing community, and this is based on covering it, going to a lot of conferences, is that you folks genuinely seem collegial with each other and indeed seem to help each other in big and small ways. I mean, how do you account? I mean, this is, this is an artistic field. This is a competitive field in terms of, you know, selling books and all of that. How do you account for the fact that the crime writing community does seem nicer, if that's the right word? Well, it's funny. I mean, we always joke that I think we get all our negative influences out, our feelings out <laughs> on the page. We're like yeah. literally, you know, we're killing people on the page. Yeah. Um, so it's a good way to get the aggression out. Um, it is a wonderful and collegial group of people. And I, I have found that too. I mean, as I've, you know, been in the community, um, you know, I think my first book came out um, 16 years ago. Um, right. I, um, you know, I, uh, get very excited when I see something by a new writer that's really great. You know, yeah. um, it's sort of like if we boost each other up, then it boosts the whole genre up and right. it's good for everybody, you know? Right. And I, I never quite understood the competitiveness that some writers have, and which is, you know, very frequently talked about um, because it's not like there's only room for one successful person. There's, there's room for as many successful people who are lucky enough and good enough to, to get there. And the more people read our genre, the better. The more people read any genre, the more people read sure. right. <laughs> the, we like that, the <laughs> better. So, uh, yeah, I have, I have so many really close friends in the crime writing community that have been there, you know, from the beginning. And I'm so grateful to people who read my first book and thought it was good. And, you know, yeah. Uh, yeah. it's just wonderful. I'm not saying that everybody in the crime writing community is an angel because that's not true, but I think right, that people right. who are sort of jealous and competitive like that waste a lot of energy that would be better spent writing. Right. <laughs> so, exactly. Yeah. And I see it a lot on Twitter, you know, because uh, there are so many writers such as yourself who are fairly <laughs> active on Twitter and the interactions between crime writers have, have a quality of, of support rather than, denigrating, whereas a, a lot of times you'll see other artists who will go unnamed who really get on sort of a, a, a kick of attacking somebody, and you kind of wonder where it comes from, whereas I, I never have that feeling reading tweets by you and other crime writers I admire. Yeah. So you, you clearly use that social media as a positive tool for yourself. Yeah, and it's like sort of helpful to me to read those tweets because if there's a writer that I re that's a friend of mine or that I really am a fan of, and if they're tweeting about some book that I haven't heard of, I'll go get that book and I'll yeah. read it. You know, yeah. I'll get excited because it's like, oh, great, another good book for me to read. You know, yeah. um, and I I feel the same way. I mean, right now I have like three books that I'm kind of reading to blurb, and they're all terrific books and all very different from each other, and it's exciting to me that there's just so much talent out there, you know. Do you have any kind of relationship with a, with a fellow writer that, with whom you share story struggles or anything during the process of writing, or is that something that you just keep between you and your editors and publishers? Well, sometimes I do. Um, actually, yeah. um, my husband is really, really good. He's a, a, um, 
former screenwriter. He did that for years, and now he's got a video production company. But he's really good in terms of, like, structure and everything. Mm -hmm. He doesn't like to read things in pieces, though, and I like to show things in pieces. He likes to just look at the whole thing. So occasionally I'll be talking to maybe to Megan or Wendy Corsi Staub is a good friend of mine or, you know, or Laura Littman and I'll, and I'll just be talking to them and I'll be like, I'm, you know, I'll, I'll share a little bit of how do I get through this or, you know, kind of thing, or, or I'll listen to them. But I, it's more sort of about maybe getting over writer's block than it is about specific story things, you know? Um, well, I'm yeah. sure it's good to have a structure, uh, you, you know, living under a roof with you because, yeah, you know, you yes, are know very intricately like, plotted. I know the Brenna Spector thing rely heavily upon flashback, correct? Right? They go back into her, oh, into her so memories hard. and yeah, yeah that's got to be very difficult. Now, just thinking about that, but right. yeah, <laughs> it was like that the only way to sort of this, to get under the, uh, it's really hard to get under the skin of someone with perfect memory who remembers everything with all five yeah really hard and it was like a big party when i stopped writing those books because it was like i can do unreliable narrators i can do people who don't remember things you know <laughs> it's like i can have people actually living in the moment when they're standing <laughs> in line for right. um so yeah but that was that structure was really hard and especially because there was an overarching mystery that went over three books so it was a real real challenge for me and i'm 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 proud of those books, yes. but it was yeah. hard. <laughs> we always like to ask our writers if uh, if they have any favorite book-to-screen adaptations. You've already mentioned uh, Mystic River is one that, of course, a great book and a great movie, but there were just things that weren't able to, you know, to transfer just simply because of the, you know, uh, of a 120-page screenplay coming out of a multi-character book like that. Uh, do, yeah. do you have any uh, transitions, that, you know, successful transitions that stick out as favorites in your mind? from? Well, you know, when we're, when we're actually, when we're talking about streaming, you know, and, and limited run series, Megan Abbott's book, Bear Me, I just thought that was terrific. Um, that was sort of doing a lot of the things I was talking about where, I mean, there was one episode that just uh, the same event was told through three different points of view. You can never do that in a movie, you know? Mm-hmm. And it really um, it was different than the book in that, in the book, we didn't get into the lives at all of any of these people's parents. And uh, in the series, you see the parents more often. Um, I thought that was a really successful, because it sort of lent something else to the book, you know, right. while still being true to the, the theme of the book. Um, yeah. You know, maybe my favorite <laughs> book to screen, a lot the earlier book to screen adaptations, I think my, a lot of times, the shallowest material can make the best movie. Yeah. Um, so, so like Bridges of Madison County, I hated that book, but I loved that movie. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that was, it just added so much more depth to. Yeah. That another book. Eastwood. Another Eastwood. <laughs> yes. Exactly. Eastwood, yeah. I know. I'm just yeah. going to talk about, we should do a podcast <laughs> no. about an Eastwood movie, which I never knew I had. To I do agree with you though. I thought the movie was, was much better than the book. I yeah. Mean, for sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, you know, well, by the way, the like um, of Human Bondage is one of my very, very favorite books, yeah. but I did not like mm-hmm. the movie version of it yeah. at all. So, yeah. you know, interesting. <laughs> there is that theory, you know, when you talked about, you know, lighter fiction or whatever. I mean, there used to be that theory with movies anyway, that mm-hmm. some of the best movies were made from not the best books because you were free to change things like people often said jaws where so much was cut out and 
changed, and yet the movie was fantastic. Right, right. The movie was wonderful, I thought, and that's a that's a perfect example of a great book to screen adaptation, definitely. And a book that I didn't I didn't really care for much at all. Um, Yeah, I know. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> exactly. I think that's that's sort of like the Bridges of Madison County thing, where yeah. it, you know, if you can take this material where there might be a decent idea right there, and then the but when it comes to the screen, it's kind of becomes this new, this whole new lively thing. You know. Yeah, I remember seeing an interview with Peter Benchley where he was talking about, and he was, he had some involvement, I think. He wasn't a accredited screenwriter, I don't believe, on that script, but he did have some involvement as consulting and everything. He was mm-hmm. talking about the, you know, the exploding uh, scuba tank at the end that actually oh, up the <laughs> He said he was telling Steven Spielberg, he was like, that is the most ridiculous, you've got to be kidding, there's no possible way. And Spielberg was like, if we've got him, he goes, suck me. If we get him to this point, it'll be fine. And, and eventually, to his credit, said, of course, Spielberg was absolutely 100% right uh, yes. in that case. But. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> in this modern environment, you know, with television being so much better, I think, than it was like when I was a kid, with all of these opportunities for adult material and streaming i i would imagine that if you let it it could take up a lot of your time you know what i mean and, and that you would be pulled away from your own work and and drawn yeah. into other people's or how do you how do you you know steer away from the latest 10 hour series that your friends say you must watch well you know i it's that's really true um i still haven't watched the undoing yet because i know i'm just going to be hooked in and i won't <laughs> be able to Stop. Right, <laughs> um, right. Yeah, I, I go through periods, especially when I'm really on deadline working, when I it's hard for me to have like other influences, especially um, in the same genre as me, whether it's uh, binging a series or, you know, reading from a book. And, um, you know, so during those times, if I'm reading anything, it's usually nonfiction, true crime or just nonfiction in general, or I'm watching like, you know, documentaries or, you know, or something like that, um, that doesn't either corrupt my thoughts or make me think, Oh God, this is so much better than anything I could ever do, (laughs) which which, which happens to me from time to time. I'm not uh, the most secure person on the planet. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think it just depends on the phase that I'm in. So like if I'm in a phase where I've just either just turned something in or I'm, or I'm kind of looking for ideas or whatever, then um, then I kind of do binge all this stuff. But right. when I'm in the throes of something, um, I tend to try to steer away from fiction for a little while. That makes total sense. And I find as a reader, I have to be very disciplined because I found myself reading less and watching more for a period there, mm-hmm. you know, when stuff like The Wire and all of that was emerging. Yes. And, you know, I sat down once and I said, Joe, you just lost six hours of time you would have spent reading a book. So it kind of, it kind of dramatized it for me that you have to show some discipline and not just dive into a media pool like that, or you'll never read. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. It's, there is, it's, there's just so much temptation out there, you know? <laughs> I find that, you know, I, I was late to, and I still, I don't like the idea of reading on my phone. And it was something that I, you know, went, went to kicking and screaming. I was like, oh, I'm never going to do it. And I eventually did. And the reason being, I live in Manhattan. And so I spend a lot of my time reading, either waiting on a bus or waiting on a subway or riding on a bus or subway or whatever. Um, and it's just easier to keep it in my breast pocket and have my book right there all the time. 
Yeah. Flip side of that, I still, and I'm not even a huge social media guy. I don't like to spend a lot of time, but I'd be lying if I say, well, I'm going to pull it out and I'm going to read a little bit, but just real quick, I'll just check my email. I'll check oh, my Facebook. Yeah. And it's the yeah. same thing that you're saying, Joe. It's like, you know, I'm not able to, you know, to read as much as I used to because of that. Yeah. And I'm not proud of it. Are, are, are just different. You know, I mean, coming back to the whole social media thing, it, it's changed our attention spans, you know, completely. Yeah. So, yeah, definitely. Do you have that thing on your computer that I've heard some writers tell me about where you can't go on the Internet when you're writing? No, I have friends who have that, but I'm too afraid because <laughs> I might miss something. So um, I, I actually, I go to Google so much when I'm writing, even sure, if it's just to sure. spell words, I'm so kind of, you know, I, it's such a crutch for me that I yeah. couldn't imagine not being able to go on the internet while I'm writing. Yeah. I mean, yeah. and I, yeah. and just to do speedy research, like, okay, yeah. what is a, what is a, what does a car that's just exploded look like? You know, um, that kind of thing. So. Well, I bet in a given day, if I'm writing too, I go to the thesaurus, you know, online. I mean, probably 50 or 60 times a day sometimes. You know, it's, it's yes. I use it that much. And it's, it's you know, that, to be able to have it right there, I don't think I could turn off the Internet either. Yes, same thing. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, do you think that your writing has improved um, as a result of the Internet? To be honest, I wasn't writing uh, in any professional capacity prior to the Internet, so I didn't really have it beforehand. But um, I don't know, honestly. It's a good question. It's probably one that I can chew on for a while before I can answer it. Um, yeah, no, I know. I'm not it's sure. The same way. I was I'm yeah. asking for myself because I feel like, you know, I think um, I do think that it, it has improved in some ways just for the ability to do that speedy research. But mm-hmm. I don't know oh. that my whether my attention span is, I don't and, know. And those breaks in conversation, I'm not sure how, or I'm sorry, in those breaks in, in uh, productivity or concentration, that's what I'm looking for. Yes. Uh, I'm not sure if that can be, uh, if that's healthy. I just don't see how it could be. Whereas if we were, you know, in the old days writing by hand in a notebook or on a typewriter or something where you didn't have that, would you be putting more, you know, 3,000 words on the page instead of 1,000 in a day? I'm, I'm not sure. It's a, it's yeah. a good question. As I say, I didn't, I didn't predate, um, you know, I, I, I wasn't writing prior to the Internet. So, As a, as a journalist, I kind of went through the whole transition. And I must say, when I get together with fellow journalists, we do say, how did we ever do it without the Internet? Because yeah. the time you would spend in libraries and, and, and in the morgue of the newspaper, I used to do a column devoted to sort of old movie stars. And that would just take forever to assemble books and all of that stuff, you know, and it, it really is like an ancient history of writing when you go back to those days. Yeah, that's really true. Really true. And, you know, it also eliminated all of those calls that used to come into the newsroom where like some guy who had had a few drinks with, they would get me on the phone. He'd say like, when did Richard Widmark die? You know, we were like the, you know, and that just ended, you know, it was, yeah. it was amazing. Like somewhere around uh, the 2000s, you know, that just stopped. Yeah. yeah. I love that. Actually. I love that whole idea. You know, I think I might steal that and put that in a book. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, was, it, it could be fun if you, if you were not on a tight deadline, but, yeah. I got to tell you, it was very common. And we used to always say, you know, like if we were in another city, 
would we just call up the local newspaper and say, can you answer this question for me? Right. But yeah. a lot of people would do that. We were Google, I guess. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's so interesting. Yeah. I can't imagine the time, though, where you were having, the, you know, they used to go into what they would call the morgue, I believe, Joe. Yeah. You know, where you could to yeah. get that information, and that had to be so time-consuming. It's something <laughs> I can't, uh, you know. Well, and the uh, truth is we had bigger staffs, as Allison knows. News, newspapers, you know, had, had more readers. They had bigger staffs. So you had more, you know, it's like chicken or egg. You had more time to work on a story. So so mm-hmm. filled those hours with research, whereas the Internet has allowed news media to have people do like three stories a day. Yeah. Which exactly. I want to be doing right now, you know. So it, 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 it's hard to say the improvements and the things that have changed for the worse. I yeah. saw a story a couple of uh, months ago about a sports writer who was, he was just talking about, you know, lamenting the, the, <laughs> the way things are now compared to back in the good old days. And he said, now if I cover a boxing match, for instance, I, before the opening bell, I've written two stories, one of, in which this guy wins and one in which this guy wins. And then I go back and whoever wins, like I fill in the blanks. And that, yes. that is strictly yes. because they need to have it on a computer screen within a half hour after the end of the fight. And he said, it's just ridiculous. Wow. You know? yeah, um, it the whole process so much. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Alex, maybe as a, as a final thought, I, I mean, that to me, that's the remaining value of books is that you get away from, of that internet, the time issue. And, and, and you focus on one thing for hours at a time, you use your imagination. And I just hope that, that never ends. Absolutely. Absolutely. And even if I'm writing about the internet, you can get lost in learning about the internet. Yes. My book. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. Oh, definitely. I mm. think that's a positive note to end on. I mean, we could talk to you all day, Allison. Yeah, me too. This was absolutely wonderful. And I think that is a positive note. And thank goodness that books aren't going anywhere. That's all I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Well, it was a real pleasure, Allison. I'm a, I'm a fan now and, and I look forward to, uh, to reading. You've got your, your next title is coming out in November. Is that correct? November. Yes. It's called The Collective. Well, I, we can't wait. Oh, yeah, good. Well, I, I certainly hope you enjoy it when it comes out. And it was so wonderful talking to you both. Thanks, of an amazing group of crime writers who debuted in the 1990s and quickly found large and loyal readerships. The novelist was just starting out when I saw her at a Mid-Atlantic Mystery Conference in Philadelphia, where some of the other then-little-known authors were Harlan Coben, Lisa Scottolini, and S.J. Roseanne. It was a new wave that also included Dennis Lehane and E. Childs, and that marked the beginning of a new golden age of crime fiction, in which we now find ourselves. Laura's new novel, Dream Girl, upholds her high standards and seems likely to become one of this summer's biggest beach books. 
Welcome. It's, uh, it's great to have you. We're very honored uh, that you're here to uh, to speak with us. Um, wanted to talk about your, your new novel, Dream Girl, which Joe and I both very much enjoyed. Just a terrific book. The story was actually written from the point of view of a, a male main character. Um, and you've spoken before about not only the challenges, but also the responsibility of writing outside one's own identity to sort of convey how people, you know, will have very different experiences based on their age and race, religion, gender, and, and, and so forth. I was thinking if you could talk a little bit about your emphasis on writing about characters across a really broad spectrum of society. And we should say that you uh, had a career for 20 years in journalism, I believe writing for 12 years with the Baltimore Sun. Uh, did that sort of stem from your origins in journalism? I think it begins with my experience as a Baltimorean from the age of six years old. Growing up in a city that was majority black was a different experience than a lot of white people had. And when I became a novelist and wanted to write stories that were very specific to Baltimore, if I only wrote about white people, I wasn't going to be really writing about Baltimore. I mean, there's a way to do it. There are these very narrow stories. There are neighborhoods where you could write with no characters of color, and that would actually be authentic. It's a pretty hyper-segregated city. And every book I write doesn't necessarily tackle subjects of race and class. But if I'm going to be writing about Baltimore, I need to do that. I just need to be open to it. The question of how one does that has been changing and it will continue to change and shift. And I think it is a challenging but important discussion and that people need to take it seriously. And I think Jerry Anderson grew in part from my disappointment in certain contemporaries I heard at conferences dismissing this concern. And they'd say things like, well, you know, I write about a sheriff and I'm not a sheriff. And I think that's really glib and disingenuous. Mm-hmm. And I know that people are increasingly worried about being canceled, saying the wrong thing in the wrong way of somehow being victimized by what they like to call the woke brigade. But I still think these questions are important. I think they matter. And so having come off of a book in which I had actually taken on 20 plus points of view, had a major character who is a black woman, had tried to be very meta about the idea of, is this wrong? What happens when a white person exploits the, the pain and tragedy of a person of color? Having done that, I wanted to sort of go into a very different frame of mind in which I looked at a man of about my age, um, a, a man who's white as I am, who's had a lot of literary success, often writing from the point of view of women, and is really reluctant to engage in this conversation. Mm -hmm. He feels besieged. I mean, he's smart enough not to say dumb things. He's smart enough to know better. But in his head, he just feels really aggrieved. Like, why do I have to talk about this? And one thing in particular that enrages him is that his books are being read differently, and people are beginning to pay attention to these themes of female death in his books Mm -hmm. and how men are sometimes enriched by the death of the women around him. And it just, it all just bothers him and nettles him. And I thought that was a fun, fun conversation to have right now. I I thought that it would feel pretty timely. It it actually became more timely than I ever expected. Right. And also for me, and this is just very individual, I really need to change it up book to book. Mm -hmm. I had 
published Lady in the Lake. It was historical in the sense that it took place in 1966. It had this huge cast characters. It had a very big, sprawling story, and the stakes were pretty high. Mm-hmm. And it was a successful novel. It did really well um, in terms of sales and, and reviews. It was great. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the obvious thing would be to, like, do another book like that. I can't do that. I have to do something that's as different as possible. So I went from big book, a big, sprawling cast, to the most insular, claustrophobic, narrow story that I could imagine. Yeah. I thought it, you mentioned just speaking sort of along those lines. It's interesting how you say you don't, you don't want to turn away from going to from sort of delving into those different types of, uh, you know, uh, what we were saying, a broad spectrum of, of society. But also in, in that book, I had never really heard it, it said this way, but I loved how you said that you try to focus in your work on having a respect for the victim uh, and not just interested in just making it a cheap, sensationalist murder or using a victim just as a MacGuffin. Um, and in that particular book, you had said that, you know, there's a story that presents herself as a ghost who is uh, speaking to uh, a character who is interested in investigating this death. And it's, you're, you're, you're more interested in my death and not my life. And it's not the same thing. I thought that was really interesting. I never heard that articulated uh, before. Well, thank you, because I think that's the most important line in the book. And I yeah. do think it's something that crime writers need to be cognizant of. And we write crime novels in which these murders, these deaths, these terrible things that happen are there so that the protagonist, the person who solves the crime, is somehow improved or enriched or becomes a better person. I find that really problematic. Mm-hmm. And, you know, something I also struggle with, and boy, am I struggling with it now, is that the crime novel actually politically is pretty conservative because the crime novel posits often that the crime matters because the status quo had been disrupted. And by the end of the book, order is restored because we know who did it. And some sort of justice has been meted out, not always official justice, not always justice in the courtroom. And I think, you know, when we're, when we're living in the era of black lives matters, we really need to investigate that idea that, that justice should be restored, that, that justice even exists. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's always interesting. I mean, I, I think people should be paying really close attention to the times that we live in and that the work is enriched when people want to engage in these conversations and ideas. Yes. Well, you, you have, Jerry, talk about the way novels have been changed by movies and television. I, I think that this statement has made changed forever. Do, do you feel that influence of film and TV in your work? Oh, absolutely. If you go back and read 19th century fiction, there's just no doubt that you can't write that way anymore. You just can't. People have expectations of a briskness in the storytelling. They can't deal with long expository passages. You know, Moby Dick has a lot of information about feeling. And how would you even do that cinematically? And we have to understand that we exist in a world where people are getting their narratives from, I mean, people often are getting a lot of information from podcasts. And I'm sorry that someone's trying to call me on this other line. There's nothing I can do about that. Yes, I do think that we simply have to make peace with the fact that cinema exists, podcasts exist. Audiobooks exist. All these things are happening. Yeah. People are fluent in narrative. 
They're not all good at it. They don't all speak it equally well, but narrative is kind of the human language. Stories are what we all use and tell. And I think we have to be aware of that and aware that readers, readers are something we're really vying for right now. We really need to create an experience that is unique and satisfying. And I'm not saying I have all the answers, but I, you know, I, I don't, I don't dislike television. I love, Mm -hmm. I love movies, but it's not aware of competition and one that is affecting the way people experience my work. Right. So do you think when you sit to sort of structure a story, do you, do you think that you and and writers in general nowadays, because there's so much television and of course film has has been around, but, and it's harder, harder and harder to get people to read, to sit down and spend the hours involved in reading a novel. Do you feel that authors need to almost structure change their structure and everything and, and write, I don't know how to, to say it, but like the literary equivalent of, of something that they'd be viewing on the screen. Uh, I don't know. I mean, it's in, what's really interesting to me right now, what I've just noticed in the culture, is that the television shows that get people very, very excited are the TV shows that are screened in the almost old-fashioned sense of it's once a week. You know, people were so engaged in the Middle East Farm, which I happen to not watch. I'm very skeptical of television crime shows that promise that they're going to deliver in a big story way, because yeah. in my experience, they never do. They just don't. Yeah. So, so I don't tend to, I mean, if I'll eventually come back to something and watch it on my own, but I'm not really interested in, in being part of the crowd and playing the guessing game. Yeah. But I think it's so interesting because it's a symbiotic relationship. Television, television in particular, more than film, is trying to learn some things from the novel. It's trying to figure out how to tell a sustained story over 8 to 13 hours. It's trying to figure out how do you keep people going, what happens if they don't see the first two episodes, you know, um, you know what happens if people don't want to, don't like the first two chapters of your book. I think, all, I think the two, the two forms are actually really informing one another right now. Um, novelists to be, novels have become very hot properties and a lot of novelists are becoming showrunners, which I think is fascinating. I'm not inclined that way, yeah. but I think it's great that people like Megan Abbott and Tom Parada want to be in the writer's room. I think that's really cool. And I think TV shows are often better for it. You know, and it seems, Laura, too, that TV or streaming is turning to, you know, books that are quite old. I mean, one of the biggest, most talked about shows of recent memory was The Queen's Gambit. And that uh, Walter Travis novel, I believe, was, I don't know, 30 or 40 years old. So it looks like they're reaching out for material in novels. I just saw today, and I was really excited by this because I, I loved this novel, The Pale Blue Eye, which imagines a young Edgar Allan Poe oh, yes. at West Point. Yes. It's going to Netflix, and it said yes. it was a passion project, and the person worked on it for like 10 years, and I thought, oh, that's terrific. That's a terrific idea. It's a terrific novel. And, you know, Absolutely, and if they can get people going back to reading Edgar Allan Poe, you know, newer yeah. people reading that as well. Uh, I mean... Um, you know, my work is my work is in various stages of play out in Hollywood right now. There's an announced project, which is Lady in the Lake, which has got a full series pickup out of you know out of the gate, and which I'm told like, look, this is going to be very different from your book. To which I always say, that's great. 
It's yeah. okay. You know, yeah. you should reimagine it. You should think about it differently. You should make it your own. And I'm fine with that. And then there are other projects that I'm not allowed to talk about yet, but that are, you know, kind of percolating. And it's always interesting to me. I mean, I have a pretty, I have a pretty big treasure chest of intellectual property at this time. It's always interesting to me what people come around and start getting interested in. Right. You know, Laura, one of the fun things for me in reading Dream Girl was the way you sort of play with our memory of, of other classics such as suspense. You know, I was thinking during it of Rear Window, you know, the idea of being laid up like that. And then, of course, Misery, where the writer is at the mercy of his caretaker. And I mean, is that something you explicitly wanted to do to explore some of those tropes of suspense? I think that... I think that I know that five years ago when I published Wild Lake with that book, I, I took a slight turn in my career and where I'd always been interested in finding big thematic ideas in crimes that really happened using, using real crimes as inspiration, never ripped from the headlines. I, I wasn't doing that. I was just really looking at these crimes that have obsessed me and trying to figure out the nature of my own obsession, the ideas that they engendered about sometimes about identity about women's lives. Mm-hmm. And then somehow I found myself thinking about the fact that I'm, I'm such a creature of books. You know, books made me. I'm a very bookish person. Mm-hmm. My mother was a librarian. My dad was a writer. And my sister worked as a bookseller for over 20 years. And I started reading young. And I learned about life from books. It's a kind of like this secondhand experience. A lot yeah. of what I knew was what I read in books. This is how people act. I know that because this is what happened in a book. And books were such big influences. And I started thinking about ways in which I wanted to engage with and argue with and rethink books that had been important to me. So I started off with To Kill a Mockingbird. Mm-hmm. You know, the idea of what if you take, this is sort of at the beginning of when people were beginning to say, look, we must believe women who say they were sexually assaulted. Yeah. And I asked myself the question of, what happens to the story in To Kill a Mockingbird if you insist on that? And I pulled it forward, but not all the way forward to the present. I pulled it forward to the late 70s, early 1980s, set it in sort of an idyllic, very liberal suburb that was proud of its politics, and just let it play out. It was like, what happens then? And what happens if in the present day those, that past crime becomes relevant again? So having done that, the next book I found myself kind of wrestling with would have been um, The Post and Always Rings Twice, you know, a book that's beloved to me. And when I wrote Sunburned, it was just like, what if the beautiful stranger is a woman? How does the story change if we flip it? And I was also thinking about Ann Tyler's Ladder of Years. Yes. So when it came to Dream Girl, I was obviously thinking about misery, but I wanted it to be urban. I wanted my character to be tantalizingly close to other people, yet still incapable of reaching out to them. And I also wanted to make a major change, which I felt reflected a change I'd seen in the culture. In Misery, the, the caretaker initially announces herself to be the writer's number one fan. Mm-hmm. In Dream Girl, the caretaker um, appears to be without any interest in reading whatsoever. Yeah. is not impressed with caring for a novelist. And yet, it turns out that in Dream Girl, lots of people want to write. They want to write, but they don't want to read, which is actually a really modern thing. <laughs> I see right. more and more. I discourage it. I think it's crazy, but it is happening. But I was also, you know, thinking about 
a book I love called Zuckerman Unbound, which is about writer and his obsessive fan and how it goes from being charming to scary. And all of that was, was part of the mix. I just, I find myself right now in a period where I was very much engaged with the books that kind of shaped me, books that were important to me, writers who were important to me. The book that I'm working on now doesn't have that. And I don't know what's happening to me right now. I, I know that the book I'm working on right now is inspired by a podcast that got me to think very deeply about a certain kind of news trope. Yeah. Something that has happened more than once, but always seems to be reported the same way and with the same, mm-hmm. same judgments attached. So I don't, you know, I'm just doing this one book at a time, putting one foot in front of the other and trying to keep it interesting for me because my hope is if I keep it interesting for me, that's, I hope that means it'll be interesting for readers. Mm-hmm. You had mentioned uh, about the forthcoming Lady in the Lake uh, uh, television series um, that you that they had said, well, you know, it's going to be different than the book, and that was something that you actually welcomed. Um, is it correct that you, you do have a role as, as an executive producer on that project? Is that right? I do, I do. But Will I'm... there be any creative input? you know, in that role, can you tell us a little bit about that, uh, about the role that you'll have in that? I mean, I seek to have as little creative input as possible. I see myself as more of a consultant. Mm-hmm. And what I always tell people in Hollywood when they take on one of my works that I'm here if you need me. And if you don't need me, that's fine. Mm-hmm. I feel like I exist as someone who's a good sounding board. Mm-hmm. There was a moment during the months that led up to this project being announced where because they were, you know, very hopeful of, you know, casting this high profile star for the part of Cleo, Lupina Nyong'o, that um, they said to me, is there a way to flesh out the character of Cleo? And I said, oh, it's already, I said, it's all there. It's just in the book, it's concentrated for pacing reasons and for other reasons but if you actually look at how much information is conveyed about Cleo, it's a huge life. There's mm-hmm. so much to work with there. And I sort of like wrote a long memo about yes. everything we knew about Cleo. And I think that helped, you know, so that's sort of what I do. Mm-hmm. Now, Laura, you get into the idea of adaptation in Dream Girl, where Jerry talks about the godfather of film being superior to the novel and, and the Peter Straub novel, Ghost Story, having been kind of trashed on film. Do, do you have some favorite and least favorite adaptations of books that you have loved? I don't want to talk about the least favorite because I would hurt some feelings. Of course. I mean, I really would. Um, but I definitely, I will say that the, the adaptations that usually disappoint me the most are actually those that are attempting to be super faithful. Right. And, you know, you know, I'm a huge fan of James Cain, and Raymond Chandler was not. Chandler could be quite rude about Cain, but one of the things that Chandler was very shrewd about, having written one of the best adaptations of a Cain novel, Double Indemnity, yeah. was that Cain's dialogue doesn't work on the screen. And they made, remade Postman Always Rings Twice with Jessica Lange and Jack Nicholson, and they used great big mammoth, and he used big swaths of Kane's dialogue and Chandler was proved right. Um, I mean, one of my favorite adaptations is the film adaptation based on Mm -hmm. the orchid thief. I think it's hilarious. 
I, I mean, I think it's just this amazing example of what you can do when you can't actually figure out how to adapt the work as it is and you just have to get kind of crazy. Yeah, right. um, I'm trying to think of adaptations I really love. I think any writer can relate to sitting in front of the uh, in front of the typewriter and thinking maybe I should get a muffin and some oh coffee my God. before I actually write. You know, that, I'll do that real quick before I get going. <laughs> the muffin speech and adaptation is one of the greatest things ever. In about I writing. think anybody it's who's ever written money. anything can relate to that. We've all we've all done that. I've, I've done. Hey, maybe I'll just do the dishes really quickly and knock that out oh, before yeah. I actually have to write. You know. What about Laura? I, I have a lot of friends that I've argued with for years. And when you talk about Chandler over the long goodbye, the Altman film, you know, and I happen to admire the way it is different, you know, and the way he said it in the seventies. I, I, I think that's an example of taking a big chance, but somehow still being true to the spirit of a piece of work. I love it. I yeah. love it. And I think it works. And, you know, I have a very, thorny relationship with Chandler. I mean, obviously I admire him. He's going to be yeah. great, but um, I really wrestle with the simple art of murder because in the end, to me, it's Chandler making the case for Chandler. And I think he's really wrong about his assessments of Agatha Christie. And I think it's, is it Sayers that he goes after? I think it's Sayers. Mm-hmm. And I, I, in dream girl, we talk about the idea, you know, that, that, Jerry is one of those people who's going to write a manifesto for, for this is how you write a novel. And then he's going to write that novel that proves his point. And I, that is something we've seen in, in fiction and literary fiction and crime fiction where someone comes along and says, this is the way to do it. But all they're saying is do it the way that I do it. And I, I don't have much patience with that argument. I thought I love the long goodbye. Um, and I know that there are people who can argue well and passionately against it, but to me, it just works. And I'm very fond of it. And I think part of the reason it works, and I feel like, you know, I feel like we're not supposed to talk about this. Chairman plots are not quite as tightly instructed as they should be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a certain kind of cavalierness, sort of like, oh, I don't know who did kill the chauffeur. You didn't know who killed the chauffeur. Didn't Howard Hawks say one of the, when, uh, the one that he did? Uh, the Chandler, that, and he, and he, yeah. say, he said in some an interviewer asked him, said, well, I don't understand. He said, to be honest, I don't understand it either. I have no idea. <laughs> I was so excited when I was a reporter. Um, I was assigned to interview Peter Bogdanovich, who was criticizing yeah. who the devil made it. Yeah. And he has it on the record that that really did happen. That father went to Hawks and said, I cannot figure out who killed the chauffeur. And Hawks. Yeah went to Chandler and Chandler was like, I don't know. And <laughs> right. I, I think that's kind of hilarious. And, you know, so, you know, but of course we love Chandler. Chandler's amazing. Yeah. You know, I think part of the reason I struggle with Chandler is because inevitably for a man of his time, you know, he literally really cannot grasp the idea of a female detective. Mm-hmm. And he has to have you know, his character who's a knight, who's, you know, he's a little bit tarnished, but he's a good man. Um, you know, it just, his vision literally had no room for that, be, for, for there being a female character right. at the heart of a crime novel. You know, I don't think he understood a Miss Marple. And, right. you know, Miss Marple really reflects female lives. You know, the idea of 
how do we know things? You know, we know things because we're plugged into our communities, because we're paying attention, because we're listening to people, because we know who our neighbors are, and we know what consistent behavior is. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I just, you know, Chandler, that, that wasn't part of his vision. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, a lot of readers, oh. when they're when they're reading books, they tend to think about the uh, you know potential casting or how this thing would look or how it. Do, do you is that a part of your process at all? Do you ever even even casting somebody in your head to create a sort of you know tangible vision in your head during the process of writing a book? Does that happen to you at all, or is it really just something that stays you know? Almost never. Yeah. Almost never. Um, there was there was an actress that I could envision as Tess Monahan, but inevitably has has aged out of the role. Right. And so it seems nicer not to mention that. Uh, no, I've never, I, <laughs> I've never tried to cast my novels. I am so, I'm so feet on the ground when it comes to Hollywood. I, I just have a real practical understanding of how it works, of how long the odds are, you know, to get a project from option yep. to production to being something that everyone's really proud of, that's hard to do. It just is. Mm-hmm. So it's not something that I want to get really attached to. Sure. And again, I just want to sort of hand it off and say, it's yours now. Do with it what you will. Yeah, yeah. One last thing, Laura, that was, a, it's, a, it's a thing that's raised in the book by Jerry, you know, and in this media environment where he, he does talk a bit about the novel maybe being in danger in the modern culture where we have tablets and television has gotten so much better. I mean, do you, are, are you nervous about the future of the novel? No, no. Um, and it's interesting because, of course, Jerry inhabits a pre-pandemic world and the pandemic yeah. world showed that the novel still has strength and it's my understanding that younger people are really gravitating toward the novel that they, they want an experience that doesn't take place on a screen. But I always remember years ago, I interviewed Martin Amos and he said, I feel that people have been proclaiming the novel dead since Don Quixote. And then it started the next day sitting up in bed saying, no, no, I'm, I'm okay. I, I just need a little broth and I'll be fine. And I always love that idea. I, I mean, I think, and I, I think that um, the novel suffers when we don't read. The novel requires us to practice focus. And if during the pandemic I had trouble with focus and I became a little jumpy, yeah. but one of the things I found out is that as soon as I started reading again, I was fine. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's something that comes back really, really quickly. But you, you can kind of damage it if you're jumping around on your screen too much and you're going to social media and you're not making yeah. time for it. Yeah. But if you make time for it, it's there and it's, it's a singular pleasure. Um, and, you know, I'm reading more poetry. I'm reading some, like, really dense lyrical writers that mm-hmm. force me to slow down because I know that's what my brain needs right now. Yeah. I, I know a lot of people and I'm sure you guys could say the same thing. Friends, it was like, as soon as the pandemic hit, we all hit Netflix, we all hit social media and all that stuff. But it, once we quickly burned out actually on that, we wanted something at a little slower pace. And I have a lot of friends who are like, man, I haven't read a book in 20 years. And I read, you know, <laughs> three a week uh, during yeah. the pandemic. So it, it was, uh, may have been one of the few positive things to come out of that. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, Laura, I want to thank you for taking this time. It's been a real pleasure to catch up with you. I, I, oh, it was so much fun. It I've been a fan of yours for a long time, and it's 
the variety and the quality of what you've done since that first Tess Monahan book is really pretty spectacular. Yeah, let's see what I can do in the next 25 years. <laughs> <laughs> we'll very much look forward to it. Thank you. Take, take care, y'all. Thank you. you too. Bye. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm.